0: Morning. Good morning. Let's pray first. Um, Father God, thank you for today. God, in this time, I pray you open our minds, allow our hearts to be receptive, challenge us, um, allow us to think critically. God, we pray that your spirit moves in this time. God, we pray that you just glorify yourself through this word. Um, that none of us is. This is me. Pray for everyone here that just yeah, be glorified. So lift up this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Alright, well, good morning. Good morning. I'm William, if I haven't met you guys. As Mark said, I lead some of the small group stuff. I didn't know small groups was going to be talked about so much today. But I'll try to plug it later also. <laughs> um, so Yeah, let me just hop into this um, and set the stage. So, we've been in chapter 6 of Romans for several weeks now, and we've been circling around the idea of what our life should look like as Christians. Until chapter 6, Paul has made a strong plea for our salvation through faith alone. And now in chapter 6, Paul is asking us to reflect about what our response should be after understanding that we are saved by grace. And earlier, he asked these two questions. In 6.1, he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And in 6.15, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? I've always thought these questions made a lot of sense. If we can get something good, why not try to get more of it? But Paul responds to both these questions with a strong, by no means, and argues that this type of behavior This type of attitude is in opposition to our identity in Christ. As we go into Christ, our nature should not allow us to continue to live in sin, or to continue to bind our will and intention towards sin. Instead, we must present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And as we do this, we enter a process called sanctification, becoming more Christ-like and this should produce observable fruits in our lives. So this isn't saying that Christians will not sin, nor does saying we should have observable fruits in our life mean that salvation is coming through works, but Paul is merely describing something that is true. If our old selves have been crucified with Christ, then we will no longer be enslaved to sin, and we should be changed in ways that are visible. This concept of that salvation is through faith alone and yet sanctification becoming more Christ-like and other types of works should be something we observe is actually something in Christianity that to me has always seemed a bit contradictory or a mystery, right? We're saved by grace and yet there should be evidence of that salvation in what we do and how we react. And so I've just been trying to think of an example of where our actions can be indicative of our maturity or beliefs, and could only think of something a bit silly, but maybe it's helpful. So, since I have a son, his name is Clement. He's three years old, and I've been primarily preparing for this message in the evenings. So naturally, I was thinking about bedtime. Clement's bedtime is roughly around 7:30, but we don't enforce it really well. and normally turns or 8, or 8.15, and finally when he's in bed, he'll come out a few times to look for stuffed animals around the house, Um, lately it's been charging this glow-in-the-dark sticker that he has with a flashlight, anyway, um, that's an aside, but let's just say his bedtime is 7.30, and that's, in this example, like, the law, so one day I'll eventually tell him explicitly or implicitly Hey, you're mature enough now. You don't have a bedtime. You no longer have a curfew. And for this one rule, he would no longer be like a slave to the clock or under the law. And he could ask really similar questions. Like, am I to stay up as late as possible now to make up for all that time that I lost when I did have bedtime? Or, um... Just, yeah, I don't have a bedtime. I should stay up as late as possible. However, these questions in themselves would suggest that he really isn't mature enough, right? Staying up late or going to bed early isn't something that tells us whether the person is mature or not. Similarly, observing sin or works in an individual isn't sufficient to tell us about an individual's salvation, but the person's outlook and attitude towards sin and righteousness directly points us to what he or she believes. Anyway, so that observation goes more along with what we've been mulling over for the last couple of weeks as we've had a lot of people come up and preach in Romans 6. Today we're finishing up chapter 6. The text we're in is 6:19 through 23. So let me read this for us and get on to it. Starting in 19, it says, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time for the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, I'm going to start right at that first sentence. I'm using the example from everyday life because of your human limitations. And I'll call this section of the message, the example from everyday life, Paul's apology. What's going on here? So, Paul has been using the imagery of no longer being a slave to sin, but instead being a slave to righteousness. In this chapter, this imagery um, of slavery first shows up in verse 6. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then from verse 15 through 18, this word that's translated slave shows up four more times. Paul appears to be putting an aside or a footnote, even an apology, for the use of this metaphor of slavery. Paul Kaiser last week gave us insight into the context of the use of slave and also why this would be a relatable metaphor. And I'll try to build off that, but before even getting into the context, Let's address the reason Paul gives. He says, because of your human limitations. What's that mean? Paul, here, is trying to describe the complexities of how our relationship with sin and God changes when we become Christians. He's searching for something we can understand, and if we stop to think about it, it's pretty wild. How can someone who's completely separated from God and stuck in sin in one moment, suddenly become accepted by God, and on the path to righteousness. It's simple in some ways, especially if you've grown up in church, the Sunday school answer is faith in Christ, and then everything's good. But it's also complicated. It's, it's wild. It's a complete 180-degree switch in our standing with God, and often in our behavior and our outlook. Um, so, Paul is pulling in this metaphor of slavery, something familiar to the recipients at the time, as we've heard, many, perhaps up to like a third, may have been slaves or servants at that time. To really illustrate this idea of this change being bound to like who your master is and like how that's shifted. So, point number one is really any time we use human metaphors to describe God, any time we're using the finite to capture the fullness of infinite, we're always going to fall short somewhere of the full picture. Paul's trying to draw out certain attributes of our relationships to sin and to God. But we need to recognize that in some areas the metaphor should be helpful and illuminating, but if we try to expand that metaphor beyond its intent, it's not going to work. So you may have run into this before if you are into theology and try to figure out like what the Trinity is and what that means. Like one God is comprised of three persons. How does that work? That's it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so we try to explain it with things that are relatable, like ice, water, and steam, or three-leaf clovers. Go Google search this, um, and you'll go down a deep rabbit hole. But anyway, some of these examples are helpful, since they allow us to imagine that one being could potentially have multiple persons. But as you, when you study these things, you realize that none of them are exactly representative of the Trinity. And so since these examples or illustrations are imperfect and will fall short, it's important to think about the context. There are some aspects of the human relationship or human experience that the author is trying to draw upon when using these metaphors, while other things we associate with it may not be the focus and could be a distraction. So, what's Paul trying to draw out? Here, I'll just read from a John Piper sermon, where he provides some context for the use of the word slave here. So from one of his sermons, it says, In other words, as humans, we broke in our weakness and finiteness for language that's sufficient for great and glorious and complex realities. And we have to settle for words and images that are partially helpful and partially misleading. Paul knows, good and well, that there were aspects of slavery that he would not want us to attribute. To our relationship to righteousness or to God even though he says that we are enslaved to righteousness and enslaved to God Jesus he recalled did the same thing in John fifteen fifteen. no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you so there are some aspects of slavery that we should not apply to our relationship to God and some that we should and there are some aspects of friendship, likewise, that we should apply, and some that we would not. We need to judge from the context what aspects of an image we're to focus on. Slavery in Romans 6.6 6 and 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 22, where it shows up, doesn't imply mainly being forced against our will to do something. It mainly implies that our wills are enslaved. They are bound to do sin or bound to do righteousness because by nature we either see the rewards of sin or the beauty of righteousness as more attractive. But we are bound to do it, enslaved to do it, because our hearts are either so corrupt or so renewed in Christ that we see sin or righteousness as compelling. We are either enslaved to sin or enslaved to God in that sense. So, ending the quote there. um, To reiterate that point again, Paul is not advocating for slavery or being bound against your will, but the imagery of slavery is being used to illustrate having our wills bound to Him, willingly in one way of life, either to sin or to righteousness. So, maybe that's helpful. Maybe it's not. But we can't ignore that either way, the language used here can still be hurtful or offensive. Right? The word slave is uncomfortable. Paul said that last week. I'm going to say it again. You can argue all you want that in the historical context, the slaves or servants were spoken to here. The Greek word duelos, that I know Mark, Nate, and Dr. Nystrom, all have all spoken about already, they were slightly different than what might come to mind in our country's history. Um, slaves and servants in that time may have been so willingly or could have held relatively high status in societies, still had some autonomy, but with the history of our country, it brings to mind some of the most vile human behaviors, seeking power above humanity, degrading the inherent worth of human brothers and sisters. We can sense even in Paul's writing in verse 19 that he's adding this aside, or perhaps even an apology, for using this metaphor, just like for going there, justifying its use because of our human limitations. So, second point. Despite the discomfort in this imagery or analogy, Paul still goes there because he believes this imagery or metaphor or topic is helpful. And God, we can trust in his omniscience, inspired these words and discussion to make it into our Bible. So the point is really we should not shy away from uncomfortable topics and truths because they are uncomfortable in themselves. In some cases, addressing that discomfort straight on is the most efficient way to deal with things. And so, the second point, what do you need to discuss with someone that's uncomfortable? Why are you doing that? And so, final point on this sentence, as the text will go on to argue, we become slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness, and we reap the benefits of that holiness that leads to eternal life. This slavery to righteousness Actually, a really beautiful picture, as we imagine a people whose wills are so bound to gods that they must willingly and obediently do good so don 't misunderstand me there 's nothing good about human slavery that existed in the us i 'm sure there's aspects of this dulose slavery that existed in this biblical historical context that are also wrong. In creation, all humans are made equally in God's image and the gospel has come to overcome all those racial, social divides and one day create a people from every nation, for all tribes and languages to dwell in perfect harmony. So there's no place for that kind of slavery in heaven. But the point I do want to make here is this. Um, God, when he puts things right, he can take the vilest of human institutions the hardest and most difficult circumstances,
1: and you can extract good out of them.
0: Again, there's nothing good about slavery, but being a slave to righteousness and serving God as our master is good. There's nothing good about sickness, a virus that's killing people, but when God takes it into his hands, he can heal, he can bring peace, he can teach us, and that's good. There's nothing good about that hardship you're going through, that you're struggling in right now, but God can take that into his hands and he can make it. So question, what's, what's our sickness right now? What do we not want to bring to light? We need to bring those things to God, because he can turn those things around and make them good. That wasn't where I was thinking I was going to start crying, so, so it's poorly for the rest of this sermon. All right, so let's keep going. Um, That was a lot to read into this one sentence in verse 19. So I'm going to keep reading through 19 and 20 now. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Paul is comparing the then and the now. Then impurity leading to lawlessness versus righteousness leading to sanctification. There is a shift in the life of the Christian, a change in direction of your life when you accept Christ. And so this next part something to reflect on is to praise God for how this looks in your life. Last week, Paul, gave, Paul Kaiser gave an awesome testimony about one aspect of his life before and after Christ came to him in his life, and how he radically shifted from a reliance and service to weed towards serving Christ. And for all of us who have had the pleasure of getting to know Paul, um, as he's been with us, we can all attest to that growth and service in our community and can all praise God for that. And. So for a lot of you, it may be easy to think of those examples from your life, and where you were before Christ, and where He's brought you to, and we need to thank God for those, and we need to share those testimonies with each other to build each other up, right? There's folks who may be earlier in their walk, or seasoned veterans, but we all have struggles, and sharing that, where we were from, and where God is bringing us, is really important. As I said before, there's nothing good about that addiction or whatever sin you're in. But when given to God, he makes it good. And when he turns things around like that, all the glory goes to him. And you know, for some of you, it might not be as easy to point to something in your life that you are trapped in. And that's really awesome too. You know, praise God if you didn't have to go through something like that. Like, I was born and raised in a solid home. and grew up going to church. I had great mentors and peers. I truly believe that my state of faith in Christ at a really young age, I don't know, like five, just Sunday school, they go around, do you accept Christ, do you accept Christ? Like, I I truly believe that that was genuine. And it's kind of a shame that actually sometimes something I get embarrassed about because, you know, sometimes I wonder Oh, did I miss out on something, like Nate preached on a few weeks ago, like, oh, sin is so appealing. It's like, I, I should have done more stuff. Maybe I needed to take more advantage of that grace. But this is exactly what Paul is writing against. So it reminds me of this song from Shilin. It's called Testify. And in this song, he presents three testimonies. The first two are what I always imagine as these really cool testimonies to have. Like you're some sort of troublemaker and then you turn into a believer, or you're like this super atheist and like you battled all the Christians, but then suddenly you turn into a believer and that's really cool. Or I know like in college I went to various like Christian conferences and they always have speakers that are like, oh, I used I like robbed the bank and then like this happened and then somehow the judge like waved everything pardoned me and I became a Christian and now I like speak to all these audiences like to me like those are always like oh that's so cool like why didn't I like rob a bank but yeah so for me though like in this song what's really cool is there is this third testimony highlighted which to me is the most reliable and really points out that regardless what our then was we all need Jesus so I'll read this verse. I'm not gonna rap, I'm not a rapper, but it goes like this: story number three, we'll call her CC, raised in Maryland, not far from DC. She's got a lot to cherish. Thanks God, she's not embarrassed. Uh, about her parents because they had a rock solid marriage. Father straight loved her, gave like no other, raised with her brother by a stay-at-home mother. Her life voice had the true God in the mix because her parents understood Deuteronomy 6. She was born, she was raised in the fear of the Lord, amazing grace appeared, and she was saved at the mere age of four. A true, clear conviction, the old is replaced. She's a fruit-bearing Christian, is growing in grace. The congregation is waiting for the next reply. The preacher says, says stand up and testify. C.C. said, I ain't got no horror story. God saved me in my youth give him all the glory. And that just reminds me of not saying that I don't struggle with sin, there's not stuff in my past, but regardless where you were and where you are now, God is doing things in your life and we all need him. So, I'll just say, as you reflect on the then and the now, remember to give God the praise and glory for what he has been doing in your life. All right, circling back to verse 19. I think that's all my crying for the sermon. Um, So let me read that again. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This time, I want to draw your attention to the action. The Master is different in both these cases, but the action is the same. It says, present your members, presenting ourselves. This is an active and willing participation in the service to that Master, whether that's sin or righteousness. Presenting ourselves is not just something passive that just happens by chance, or where we just coast along to see what happens. Right? We don't just like show up here on Sunday and see like I don't know, like something great's gonna happen. There is some active participation on your part. The language here is a bit funny too. As I was reading it and summarizing things I was just typing, like present yourselves, present yourselves. But it says present your members. Members, like parts of your body. And I don't think it means just to present part of yourself to the service of God, like Like, God, you can have this hand, but I'm going to keep this eye to keep looking at things I should be looking at. Um, Rather, it's to treat our members of our bodies as instruments for God's use. There's a sense here that our presentation of our members is sacrificial. Truly to place ourselves at God's disposal. We must offer ourselves to be at the disposal of righteousness. To be at the disposal of God's will. As we touched upon earlier, the idea of slave here is getting at the binding of our will to God's, and so to present ourselves as slaves to righteousness, we must also be seeking God's will in our lives. So what's that look like? How do we offer ourselves properly? How do we know we're in God's You know, I don't think the text tells us the answer to that here, so I'm going to let Mark preach on that for another sermon to decipher what God's will is for our life. But I can give a few things that can only help. To know God's will, you need to read and hear his word. So, one, just read your Bible. And here I'm really just preaching to myself too because I need to do that more often. Two, seek the counsel of other believers. And so here's my small group plug for the week, other than the video of me also. Um, meeting regularly with a group of believers from all ages, maturities, walks of life, um, and talking through life, its challenges, its joys, and all that stuff in between, can really give you such a broader perspective of how God works in the lives of others, and how, and give you insight to actually how God is working in your own often we are so close that we can't see what God is doing there. So, small groups, take a survey. It's going to be great. All right. So, all right. So we really just spent this whole time in verse 19, but I'll try to wrap things up quickly now by running through the next four verses. I'll read those again. 20. When you were slaves to sin, free from the control of righteousness, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think as Nate was saying a few weeks ago, there's two paths, and you're choosing which one. And here Paul's presenting like the equations or formulas of those paths. The first is, be a slave to sin, that leads to lawlessness, and more lawlessness, eventually leading to death. Or, slaves to righteousness, which results in fruits and various outcomes in our lives, leading to sanctification, and at its end, eternal life. Both are paths, again, impurity leads to ever-increasing wickedness, being free from righteousness, but the outcome is death, and righteousness leads to holiness, and the benefit is eternal life. Both are a journey, but here's the beautiful thing. No matter how far you are on that journey towards sin, no matter how deeply rooted you are in there, Even if you've been traveling down that road for years and years, the gift of God is available and can pull you out of that deep-rooted journey and set you on the path of righteousness. And once you've been pulled out of there by God, He lets no sheep fall through His hands. This gift from God, being freed from the bondage to sin, being bound under the law, These are things that have been made possible through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And as we wrap up this chapter, it's a really good place to continue to remind ourselves of Jesus and what he's done. Earlier in Romans, months ago, when we were in 323, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Regardless of whether we can point to some significant addiction, hardship, or trouble that God saved us from, or whether we've been well-behaved our entire lives, all have sinned. And before a holy God, even our best attempts come up short. And because of our sin, we had been eternally separated from God. There was no way to stay on that path of righteousness by ourselves. But in 5.8, we read, But God demonstrates his love for us in this... While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, to close up today, the last verse, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. We were on that path to death without Christ, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we close up this chapter, I think it's always great to remind ourselves of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us how uh, we couldn't do anything on our own, but, yeah, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to save us from that. Thanks.